Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. So those of you that are part of our church or have been attending for a while know that we've been doing a series called A Transformed Life. And we're going to continue that today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the fact that that one of the ways that we're transformed and that we're changed as followers of Jesus Christ is through communion, through the Lord's Supper, through the Lord's Table. There's a lot of different words, through the Eucharist. But we are changed. We are, when we encounter God's presence in communion and we meet Him by faith in communion, He does something to our lives. He changes us. How many of you believe that? Now, how many of you grew up in a church background or, or your, your own experience has been that communion after a while, the Lord's Supper can kind of become a bit of a, a ritual? It can almost be, you know, dead, like you just kind of do it, right? You eat the bread, you drink the cup, you know, that's what they do around here, so we got to do what they do, and you, you go through it that way, and if you're not careful, you miss the reality that God's presence is there to meet you. God is there to extend to you all of the benefits of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that the broken body of Christ and the broken blood of Jesus is still active in our life, changing us and making us like the Son. This is really important because if we're not careful, we can embrace a view of communion that is only symbolic. And what I mean by that is, you know, this is just symbolic of, of the body of Christ. This is just symbolic of the blood of Christ. But we miss the reality that God is present to meet us in communion in the same way He's present to meet us when we sing songs to Him, when the Word is preached, that these sacraments, these ways of God extending grace to us through physical acts still work. So, by the way, I, I don't believe that, you know, the communion elements turn to the blood and body actually of Jesus, but I don't believe that the Scripture teaches that communion is merely symbolic. There's nothing in the Christian life that is merely symbolic. Everything is to have an impact upon us. And the Holy Spirit is involved in all that we do so that what we do becomes life-giving. Am I talking to anybody? So we're going to look today uh, at something that is really powerful. We're going to see that Communion in the New Testament came from the Passover meal in the Old Testament, and that these two things are linked. And what I'm hoping to accomplish in the message today is to show you that Old Covenant, Old Testament, and New Covenant, New Testament, Covenant and Testament are interchangeable words, okay? So the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are linked together, they're not separate, and they're a continuation of a redemption plan of God, and that God wants us to understand that everything that happened in the Old Testament was for us. It is to speak to us, it's to show us the nature and the character of God and the journey that we have as children of God, with God, in the same way that God worked with Israel. Because what I find a lot of times is, Christians, especially new Christians, they read the Old Testament, and it's, how many of you know the Old Testament can be kind of trippy? Come on. It can kind of freak you out a bit. You're like, what the heck? A lot of people dying. God's people are bad, right? You start reading it, and you're going, what is happening here? And we don't understand that all of it is something for us today. So here's a little principle for you. In, when you're interpreting the Bible, 
Bible interpretation in theology is under a category, I know I'm using big words, a category called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the interpretation of Scripture. You follow me? So when you interpret the Bible, and all of us do it, there are right ways to interpret the Bible and wrong ways to interpret the Bible. When you interpret the Bible, that classification of theology is called hermeneutics. Okay, so what we want to do today is look at one of the laws or the principles of hermeneutics. And here's the principle I want to share with you. It's the principle of seeing all of Scripture, but especially the Old Testament in this case, through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so in, as you read the Bible, what you actually do is you look back. In the New Testament, you look back through the person of Jesus, and you see that through Him, everything in the Old Testament is interpreted through Jesus. You see that through Christ is a shadow of the cross. And so as you look through the life of Jesus, you see Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis and going all the way through Malachi, we see Jesus. We see Jesus in every book. But you won't see Him if you don't understand that He is the fulfillment of Scripture. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, became embodied and we beheld His glory. And what's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. So Jesus is the Word. That's the Greek word logos, which means the full story, the full narrative, the full explanation of God. So what, what is that telling us? I know we're going deep here in theology, but here's, here's the point. Everything that the Bible had to say from Genesis to Malachi and then even afterward, everything the Bible had to say, the whole story of God's work with His people, with Israel, all of it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Bible in a body. He's God in a body and He's the full of Scripture in a body. And so if we want to understand what God has to say to us, we look at Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, we look through Jesus and His person, and His shadow is cast over all of the Old Testament, and suddenly things we didn't understand before begin to become alive. We understand things in the Bible we couldn't see before because we see them through the lens of the one who only can interpret them, that is Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's a principle. It's really, really important when we read the Bible that we understand we are reading it in the post-Jesus world, well, in the now-Jesus world, right? We're reading the Scripture through His person, and everything that the Old Testament had to say was about Him. So we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament today that is part of the most important story of the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you what the most important story of the Old Testament is, and I'm going to tell you why it is, because it's the story that all the prophets, all the Psalms, all the other writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament constantly looked back to and talked about. And that's the story of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Are all of you familiar with that story? I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. God's people came out of three men and their families, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes went into Egypt and became slaves and for over 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. And Egypt was a very dark, 
nation that worshipped many false deities, and they had a fixation upon death and upon darkness. Okay, so these people grew in Egypt. They grew and grew and grew until they numbered in the millions, and there came a day when God was going to rescue them from the power of Egypt. Okay, so He sent a man named Moses, and Moses is the greatest figure of the Old Testament. He is the Christ figure more than any other figure in the Old Testament. He is, he is considered the embodiment of all the commandments and the laws of God. And Moses went down into Egypt and told Pharaoh the king, let my people go, right? And he did this over and over and over again, and Pharaoh kept saying no, and he hardened his heart. And after he'd hardened his heart and hardened his heart and hardened his heart, God finally said, if you're going to harden your heart, I'm going to help you. And he he put it in full heart. He just stiffened it, made it like a rock. And eventually, God brought his people out of Egypt, and he brought them into the wilderness. Well, first thing he did is he brought them through a sea, a Red Sea. And their journeys, according to 1 Corinthians 10, their journeys are a picture for our life. So he rescues them from the power of Pharaoh and this dark kingdom he rescued us from the power of Satan and sin and a dark kingdom. And then he brought them through a Red Sea. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that was a baptism. And we go through baptism. And then he brought them into the wilderness. And what did he do in the wilderness? He stripped them of their self-sufficiency, of their false worship, of their dependence upon themselves. And he taught them to trust in him. What does he do in our life? He brings us through our baptism. He takes us through difficulties, struggles, and trials. Why? That he might strip us of our self-sufficiency, our self-dependence, our, our evil ways. God takes us through processes to strip us. And sometimes it includes suffering as it did with them. Am I talking to anybody? Right? And he brings them through this process, and after they've gone through this process for a period of time, they eventually come to a point where they cross over into their promised land. And their promised land is representative for us as God's people of coming into finally resting in Christ and all that he's accomplished for us and trusting him and not ourselves. Now, there's still battles in the promised land. They had giants to conquer and cities to conquer, but they let God go with them and do the conquering. You see, and for us, we come to a point where we quit trying to do it in our own strength and we let Him do it. Right? Well, one of the key moments in the Exodus story, one of the key moments is when they're getting ready to flee Egypt. And, and one of the things that God did was God judged each of their false gods with 10 plagues. And he came to the last one because they were stubborn and they wouldn't let the people go. And remember, these people had been slaves for 400 years, so they'd been oppressed. They'd been killed. They tried to kill their babies. They stripped them of all their dignity. They stripped them of their humanity. They made them out to be like animals. And they oppressed them and oppressed them and oppressed them. And finally, the Lord heard the cry of his people and he went to rescue him. And he called Israel my firstborn. And Egypt wouldn't let his firstborn go. In fact, Egypt would often kill their firstborn. And so what does God do? He says, I'm going to deal with your false gods. I'm going to deal with the firstborn. And he brings them to this feast that became a yearly feast. And do you know, even today, Jews all over the world celebrate this feast. It's called the Feast of Passover. And in Passover, when Jesus walked the earth, he showed that Passover was really about him and that Passover was fulfilled in him 
And he redefined it and he inserted himself into the middle of the meal. So that's what we're going to look at today. And then I'm going to draw some principles out of the Passover meal for communion. We're going to have communion at the end. But I'm going to draw some principles out of the Passover meal that apply to our lives. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to go into an Old Testament story that you might feel like doesn't have any relevance for my life. And I'm going to show you that it's relevant for you just like it was for them. And it counts right now in your life. We're going to draw some, some lessons out of that Old Testament story. Are you ready to go? You still with me? Come on, you got to help me out. Now, if you're new around here, like every once in a while, you got to give this Doug a bone. My name's Doug, by the way, if you're new. And you do that by just giving me a nod of a head or a yeah or a good word or something. That just helps me out, okay? Just know we're engaging. You don't have to say that, though. That's going too far. But thank you. Thank you for your encouragement. Okay, so... The first thing I want you to see is that Passover was a shadow and a symbol ultimately of the Lord's Supper and of Jesus. And I I, want to show you that Jesus, when He was doing the Lord's Supper, communion, He was doing Passover. So look at Luke chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. It'll be on the screen. Luke 22, 7 and 8, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread. That was part of the feast on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, he sent them into the city ahead of time, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now, have any of you in this room ever gone through an actual Passover meal? Anybody in here? Okay, several of you have. It's powerful. And every element of a Passover meal has symbolic richness to it, something about Christ. Well, what Jesus did is he gathered together his disciples, right? You've seen the painting, Leonardo da Vinci, right? That's who painted that. They're all on one side of the table looking at him. Remember that? That's what actually did not happen. Okay, it was, but, but they were probably on the floor. The table was raised up. They were laying on pillows. And, uh, and Jesus is taking them through the Passover meal. And he's taking them through several different elements. It had several elements. They're eating bread. They're eating lamb. They're eating bitter herbs, And between each, they're drinking some wine, and each glass of wine represents something. And Jesus came to a certain point in the Passover meal, which I won't get into right now, and he inserted himself there. And he said, this is what Passover really is. Okay, so we're going to look at Passover. The original Passover is so relevant to our time, and I want you to see that right here. So we're going to be looking at Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. So you, you with me? Any note takers in this room? Don't raise your hand. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. Now remember, I gave you all the backstory. Here's what's happening. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, by the way, so far there have been nine plagues. Each plague has judged a false deity in Egypt's worship. And now they're down to one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt this month shall be for you the beginning of months. So they already had a calendar. He redefines their calendar. He says, I got a new calendar for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly 
of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses of which they eat it. The lintel was the top crossbeam. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Whew, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? So let's walk through this. And what I'm going to do, you saw it in its con- the text in its context. I gave you the background. This is now God saying, this is a feast you're going to eat. And it became a perpetual feast that they were to eat every year, a perpetual commandment. And this is to rem- remind you so you remember what I did for you, how I took it personally and I went and fought your enemies for you so that I might rescue you and bring you into your own land. So this is God working, fighting on behalf of his people. But I want you to notice for us what this means. Now remember, and this is what we're doing, we're looking through the person of Jesus and his life and we're letting him interpret to us the text now in light of who we are and the time that we live, okay? So here's the first principle. If you're a note taker, the first principle is the Passover was a time of new beginnings. Jesus makes all things new every day. Amen? His mercies are new every morning. We're not continually bound to the sins and the mistakes of yesterday. Today is a new day. That's the nature of God. You know, one of the names of Jesus is Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first in the alphabet, and He's the end of the alphabet, and He's he's everything in between. But what, what does that tell us? If he's the alpha, what is he saying in that? He's saying, look, every day, every morning, every second of every day can be a new beginning if you trust me. You don't have to be bound by your past stuff. You know, you may have really blown it last night. You may have really blown it on the way to church this morning. I say this often, but maybe you and your spouse got in a fight on the way to church. It happens, I know. Your kids are annoying you, you're annoying each other, somebody's late, you're pulling everybody out the door, you're stressing out, somebody goes, somebody else goes, well, you, and then you walk in the door, praise the Lord, it's so good to see you, brother, (laughs) right? And you put on the whole thing, right? You, You walk through the door, you were just snapping at each other, and now you're sitting here and I'm reading your mail and you're feeling, uh uh-oh. Well, you know, it's beautiful right now. In fact, today at communion, you can make it right, because Jesus is the one who is the God of new beginnings. Secondly, there was a lamb for each household. Salvation has to begin in the household of every family. God has provided a lamb, and that's Jesus, 
for each of our families and each of us as individuals, and He's more than sufficient to satisfy all our hungers and all our desires. Why is this so important? Because we, by nature, are people who compare. Have you ever noticed that? I saw something the other day. Somebody was speaking about this. They said that based upon studies, I don't know how they figured this out, based upon studies, every individual fills 12% of their thinking in the course of the day. Again, don't ask me how they came up with this. I'm just quoting it. It could be spurious, so go check it out. But supposedly 12% of our thinking is us comparing ourselves with someone else. Think about that. Almost one out of every, or more than one out of every 10 thoughts that passes through your head is a comparison thought, an envy thought. Why are other people, you know, we have a tendency to look at other households. We have a tendency to look over the fence and see that the grass is greener over there. And I'm telling you, I've had a struggle with my lawn the last couple of years, and that's a real thing. Right? We don't realize the reason it's doing so much better is maybe it's built over, over a leaky septic tank. septic tank. You just never know, right? Here's the reality. We have a tendency to compare. And we think sometimes, you know, wow, that person's super spiritual or they're so godly or wow, what a family. Jesus is really with them. I wish he was with me like he was with them. And that's really sad because the reality is, is that Jesus is a sufficient lamb and a unique lamb for every house. Your story is unique. Your journey is unique. Nobody's ever been like you. Nobody's ever gone through what you've gone through, lived through what you've lived through. Nobody's ever experienced your triumphs and your pains or your struggles. You have a unique story to tell like no one else. And Jesus is with you as much as he's with the next person. Turn your heart to him and embrace him and quit comparing yourself. Because when you compare yourself, you say a couple of things. You say, first of all, I don't like how you made me or I don't like the life you've given me. And second, other people have it better and you don't know you don't know their story you don't know what they're walking through at that moment they might just have a great Instagram account they might their, their TikTok videos might be really cool but they might be a mess so leave them alone and let them walk with God in their own way and understand there's a lamb for you amen number three share the lamb with your neighbor if you have too much for your own family in Christ, we always have too much of Jesus for our own households. We, we do. We have too much. So we're called to share with our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Share Jesus. He's able to multiply himself. Listen, all of us in this room have more than enough God. We just don't realize it. If you're a follower of Jesus and he's in your life, he's given you more than you can contain. He's more than you have capacity for. What does that mean? We have to share Him. Tell others about Him. Share His love, His grace, His goodness, His favor on your life. That doesn't mean you've got to go out and preach to everybody. It means you share the love that God has put in you with others. You share the provision. You make your life an offering for the sake of the benefit of the other. That's how you live, right? You live as though you have more of God than you're able to give away. Amen? Because you do. All right. Some of you are looking at me like you don't believe me, but you're wrong and I'm right on this one. So, <laughs> Number four, the lamb is without blemish. 
This is really important. Jesus is without blemish, sin, or fault of any kind. Because he is sinless and faultless, he is uniquely qualified to die for us and to pay our sin debt. This is really important because we are not without blemish. I saw a thing uh, uh, recently that, that said a, a number of years ago they did a, a survey and, and people identified on average that they thought that they sinned 4.9 times a week. Another funny statistic. And I just, when I read that, I laughed. I, I thought, I, I sinned 4.9 times in the last half hour. We obviously don't know ourselves well. We don't understand sometimes how blemished we are. Even in our thoughts about others or ourselves or other people or God. I'm not saying, I'm not sharing that so we can all become more sin conscious. I'm sharing it because the reality is, is we need an unblemished one. We need someone without any impurity, without any fault. He's perfect. And I don't know if you know this, but there is pretty good evidence that at the moment that Pilate, the governor of Rome, was examining Jesus, and he was looking him over and listening to him not defend himself, and at that moment that Pilate said, turn to all of the council and said, I find no fault in him. Behold the man. At the moment he was doing that, Israeli families all over that part of Jerusalem and a part of the world were in the process of examining their Passover lambs. And they were looking at them to see if they had any fault. They were examining them. And then once they found one, they would show their family and they would say, Behold the lamb. And everybody would rejoice and celebrate. At that moment, Pilate is presenting the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who's unblemished and perfect, and he's saying, behold the man, and the man is the Lamb, and he's without fault. Amen. Amen. And then the Lamb's blood is to cover our doorposts and our households. The doorposts are those areas where we enter and exit each day, when we enter life, work, relationships, temptations. We need to remember that Jesus' blood covers us as we go out. When we come home dirty from the world, we need to receive a fresh, a sense of fresh cleansing from the blood of Jesus. Think about this. This is the house. The house has been redefined. It's not where you live, it's where He lives. And He lives here. And over your life, you may not realize it, but as a son or a daughter of God, over your life there is blood. It's not your blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And some people are kind of taken back by the gospel. They're taken back by Christianity. One man said years ago, I don't like Christianity because it's a bloody religion. It's based upon death and sacrifice. That's not the whole story. It's also based upon resurrection and life. But before there can be resurrection, there has to be death, right? And the cross is over our lives. There is a vertical beam and a horizontal beam, and it's covered in blood, and its shadow is over us. And it says of our lives every day as we enter and as we exit and as we go about our lives, it says we're covered, we're forgiven, we're washed, and not only that, but the death angel can't touch us. 
And when we talk about the death angel, we're talking about that which would take away the life of God from us. Yes, we all physically still die until Jesus comes. But we're not under the authority of death until He says. See, our life is covered. And then when you eat the lamb, you've got to eat all of it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. What does all that mean? All this funny symbolism. First of all, when you follow Jesus, you've got to eat all that He is, including the parts that are hard to swallow. You know, these days especially, many people, many followers even of Jesus are following a Jesus that doesn't exist. They're following a self-made idol. They're following a Jesus of their own fashioning that fits their own opinions, their own ideas, their own prejudices. See, what we like to do is we like to read Scripture and we like to look at the gospel critically as though we have the ability to judge what's right and what's wrong. We like to look at it and we like to say, I like this part of the Bible, I like this part of Jesus, I don't like this part. When Jesus got really angry here and turned all these tables over and got ticked off or when when Jesus called down judgment upon Jerusalem within one generation because they had rejected the Messiah of God, when Jesus did these things, I don't like those things about Jesus and so we have a tendency to kind of cut those parts of the lamb out and we eat only the parts that agree with us as though we're the ultimate judge of God and His Word and who Jesus is. And, and, and we see here, this is a great picture. When you eat Jesus, when you, eat, when you take in the lamb, you got to take all of them. Now, that doesn't mean you don't wrestle. That doesn't mean you don't struggle. Every time I read Scripture, every time I look at God, I look at Jesus, I look at His dealings with His people, I am confronted with things I really struggle with, things that I wrestle with, things that I don't fully understand. And I wrestle with those things. I struggle with them. I process them with God in prayer. I read what others have had to say about it. But there are some things that I just have to say, I don't know that I get that, Lord. I don't know that I get that but you're the Lord. And I know that further light's going to come either in this life or on the other side, but I embrace you for who you are in your fullness, even though I don't understand a lot of things about you. Amen? I'm almost done. Next, you eat the Passover dressed and ready to flee from Egypt. What's that mean? We got to be ready to flee from the darkness of our time, from the darkness that's coming in in our life and be ready to run into the promised land that God has for us. We've got to be ready to move and walk with God to obey Him quickly because when God's on the move, when God's speaking, when God's at work in your life, it's not time to delay. It's time to move with Him now. Am I talking to anybody? Come on, help me out here. Am I talking to anybody? And I want you to think about that, you know, what does the scripture say about certain sins? What's it say about youthful lusts? It doesn't say stand and fight. It says flee. It says run. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do when you're facing a temptation is to get out of the place where it's happening. Right? Joseph ran out of Potiphar's wife's house. Potiphar's house ran out. He ran so quickly that part of his outer cloak was taken from him and she had it. Why? Because he knew, I got to get out of here. Danger, danger, danger. Sometimes in life, the only way to get away from the power of darkness is to flee. And Israel had to be ready to get out of Egypt now. 
you got to go. You can't stay. Some of you are in circumstances and situations. I just feel to speak this. I, I feel like there are people even right now that are in relational situations that are really bad for you. Whether they're abusive or there's a darkness there, you know it and you're trapped and you're hooked and maybe you need help. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes the best thing you can do is run. Get out. Get away. And listen, I'm not talking to people that are married in Jesus Christ and you're just mad at your spouse, okay? <laughs> Somebody's like, oh, I finally got the word of the Lord. <laughs> no. Felt like I better cover that one. Okay, so people are like, I'm out. Pastor Doug said it. <laughs> All right, and the last one is this. God judged his enemies and ours through the death of the Lamb of God. You know, when Jesus died... He actually, it's, it's really powerful. Did you know that his death destroyed death? Did you know that according to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, through death he destroyed him who had the power of death? That is the devil. And released all of those who were all their lifetime subject to slavery because of the fear of death. Think about this. When Jesus wanted to defeat death, he died. Why? Because death couldn't hold him and didn't have a right to him, so he beat death. He rose from the dead. And in so doing, he set something in motion through time and space. His death became the defeat of darkness. Amen?